Right, morning everyone. Uh, you might want to be turning to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which we'll look at in a moment. We are carrying on our series looking at the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so before we come to 1 Corinthians 1, we are going to have the opportunity to read that together. Once again, we've been doing that most weeks. It's just great to be saying these words together, recognizing the truth of them. Uh, so we're going to do that in just a moment. I think the words will come up on the screen. So you can join in with me. Here we are. Okay, so the Apostles' Creed says this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As I say, we're carrying on journeying through this Apostles' Creed. Uh, last week, Dan was uh, dealing with those words, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, looking at who Jesus is and giving our whole lives to him. We're going to carry on from there. And we come to these words, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, he descended to the dead. And on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. You see in the Apostles' Creed these lines focus on what Jesus did while he was on earth. Having been born of the Virgin Mary, God becoming a man in Jesus, the Son of God incarnate. We focus on what he did. It's a pretty big chunk of the creed, and yet, in these verses, we don't see really anything about Jesus' teaching. Anything of the miracles that he performed while he was here. And not because these things are unimportant or we don't want to look at them, but because actually what it does mention here is absolutely central. This is what the whole thing is all about. You see, these lines take the time to lead us through the key event in the history of the universe. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then subsequently his ascension into heaven and now he is seated at the Father's right hand. So we're going to look at, to, to kind of look at some of this today, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 1 and verses 18 to 25. We're going to focus in really on a couple of specific verses, but we'll read this whole section together. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. See, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, he's exhorting them to remember what this is all about. In fact, the first few verses before this, he's been dealing with the fact that they're a bit, they're getting divided. They're kind of thinking, well, actually, I'm following Apollos. I'm following Paul. I'm following Cephas. I'm following someone else. Paul, in the midst of saying, no, no, no. This is what it's all about. Tells him, don't be divided like this. Come back to the truth. And he draws them to this. The message of the cross. The message of the cross that is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. He goes on to say very bluntly, we preach Christ crucified. This is what's important. This is what's key. This is what it's all about. So, in terms of images, I've got one today. and It, it might have already appeared. Is that why everyone's chuckling slightly? There it is. It's all good. It might stay up for the whole time. It might keep coming and going, but this is what we're looking at. This is where we're turning our gaze. The cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. We're going to gaze on that with the help of these verses. And I've got some F sounds for you. It's kind of alliterative. You'll realize why it's kind of alliterative in a minute. But we're going to see that the message of the cross, the cross of Christ, is factual and foundational. And as we've looked at that, we're going to see, we're going to ask, how do we respond? You see, as we look at these verses, Paul presents a bit of a binary response. You see, we either see this cross as foolish and false, or we recognize the reality that it's phenomenal. It's a PH, but come on. And we receive it by faith. That's where we're going. The message of the cross. This is a factual, foundational truth. What does Paul say? We preach Christ crucified. He talks about the message of the cross. So you see, this is central to everything that we believe. That's what Paul declares. This is what we preach. This is where we find salvation. This is where we find hope. This is where we find life. Christ crucified. This message of the cross, of Jesus going and dying... And rising again, this is the solid ground to build our lives on. It's the heart 
of Christianity. You see, people can say a lot of things about the Bible. They could talk about, it's a bit of a rule book, isn't it? Or it's a, it's a good source of advice and comfort in times of trouble. It, it might be a bit of a resource for wisdom. People might more kind of, uh, just kind of pragmatically say, well, it's a collection of books written by a series of different authors. And in one sense, all those things, none of them are wrong. There are a lot of different people who God inspired to write the different books of the Bible. There is a lot of wisdom in there. There's advice and comfort. In fact, there are even some rules. But this isn't a reference book or a textbook or some kind of dead, dry book. It's the living word of God. And in fact, as we look through the pages of this, this is one big epic story. God's story. Now, some others might agree up to this point and say, yes, exactly, it's a story. Completely made up fairy tale of a story. It's just fiction, it's made up. But no, the Bible's not a fairy tale. It's one big epic true story. This is history that is recorded here. This is God's story from the beginning of the universe. In fact, until he calls us home. One great, big, historical, factual, true story and at its core is one event. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. We preach Christ crucified. Here is the foundational key event of the universe. It's central, it's vital. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, lived a perfect life, and he died on a Roman cross. Only to rise from the dead three days later. And you see, the Apostles' Creed is keen to stress this point. This really happened. We're talking about a real, factual, historic, true event. So we read in the Apostles' Creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Immediately, this is grounded in history. It's historic, tied to a time and a place and to other characters in the events Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea from roughly 26 to 36 AD under the Roman Emperor Tiberius. This reality is grounded in history. Jesus Christ, that Passover week, is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Jewish leaders bring him before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. We might skip through the events of Matthew chapter 27 as we look at this. We see in Matthew 27 verse 2, they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. He was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended to the dead. You see, Pilate hears all that the Jewish leaders are saying. 
He questions Jesus. Jesus is questioned by Pilate. He's questioned by the Sanhedrin. He's questioned by Herod. But ultimately, Pilate has to make the call. He hears all that they're saying, and somewhat reluctantly, it seems, because ultimately he can't find anything against this man to bring, make the charges stick. Ultimately, he hands him over to be crucified. Verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. As we read, they flog him, beat him. They, as it goes on, they mockingly give him a crown of thorns and a purple robe to wear. They lead him up the hill to Golgotha. As they're going, they grab someone, Simon of Cyrene, out of the crowd and say, you carry his cross and force him to carry the cross. And as they arrive at the place, they crucify Jesus. Nails through his hands and feet, hanging on a cross. As that's happening, they cast lots for his clothes. They make a a mocking sign. Look, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And the religious leaders join in in mocking him. And in verse 45 of Matthew 27, we read this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the lands. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Crucified. Died. As the story goes on, the curtain is torn in two. There's an earthquake, some tombs open and people are raised to life and they declare uh, the truth. And as all of this happens, the centurion at the cross and others as well suddenly declare Surely he was the son of God. As he hangs there, they confirm his death by piercing his side. A wealthy man from Arimathea called Joseph asks Pilate for the body. And he buries him in his freshly cut tomb. On the third day, he rose again. You see, we know this isn't the end. We move into Matthew 28. The women go to the tomb and they find the stone rolled away. They find no body in the tomb. Just an angel who can tell them what's happened. Who says this, Matthew 28 verse 5. Do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as they said. 
Come and see the place where he lay and then go and quickly tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. The tomb was empty, his body gone. As we sang just a moment ago, death could not hold you. You are victorious. Praise to the risen king. As he goes on, we can read that he appeared, we can read further on in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, he appeared to his disciples, he spent time with them, he appeared to hundreds of people, to the different apostles, and then he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We preach Christ crucified covers a massive historical event. Factual, historical, true. We don't believe in an inspirational fable or a legend or a fairy tale. We don't believe in just a nice idea that kind of makes some sense. But a true event and reality that happened. Jesus, the Son of God, came and died for us. But you see, the message of the cross is not only factual. It happened. It's true in history But this is foundational. You see, we preach Christ crucified covers both a lot of narrative, but also a depth of meaning and truth. Perhaps the most quoted verse in the Bible, John 3.16, says it like this. For God so loved the world that he, he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him may not die, but have eternal life. Why did this happen? Why is there this historical event of Jesus dying on the cross, of all this pain, of all this wonder of the Son of God dying and rising from the dead? Christ died for us. Why would there be a need? Why, is, why would he have to die? And Paul puts it simply in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's the biggest problem in the universe. Even above. The biggest political issues behind the biggest wars and the biggest sets of fighting, the biggest, even bigger than the poverty and illness and sickness, even bigger than NHS waiting times or government failures, even bigger than conflict anywhere and everywhere. At the heart of every problem, at the heart of all of it is a bigger problem. The sin in every heart that separates us from a God who made us and loves us. We preach Christ crucified not just to tell the story of a man who died on a cross and rose from the dead, but to see the truth. This was for us. This was for us. This is the way to be saved. This is the answer to the biggest problem in the universe. 
As we look, as we gaze at the cross, we see that God has provided the solution through his son. I'll go to those verses in Romans 3. Romans 3.21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. This is the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, died in our place that we may be forgiven. To be accepted by God, not by works, not by us being good enough, not by us managing to somehow make ourselves okay, but through Jesus, his death and his resurrection. He died that we may have life, eternal life, and that we may know God. We preach Christ crucified. So how can we respond to that? You see, Paul in these verses in 1 Corinthians shows us two stark responses. Firstly, that this is foolish and false. We read the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He expands that in verses 21 to 23, where he says that God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. But then he says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness, to Gentiles. A stumbling block. Foolishness. Looking for signs, looking for wisdom. It's a stumbling block to Jews, we're told. It's offensive. This message is an offense. Perhaps they could be thinking, aren't we good enough? Aren't we already chosen? We are the children of Abraham. You can see that in John 8, Jesus talking to the religious leaders. We are children of Abraham. What are you talking about? We can see them again and again asking for signs of Jesus. Show us that you are truly who you are, who you say you are. But we see them again and again looking for a sign that would suit them rather than seeing what was in front of them. Jesus, the Son of God, coming into the world and going to the cross an affront to what they believed. Offensive in terms of what they were expecting, what they had been, what their preconceived ideas told them. God will come and rescue us. Messiah will do that. Political freedom will be ours. We will be able to be the people of God, free from Roman rule. A stumbling block to them. And that's true today for so many. The message of the cross is seen as a stumbling block. People can take similar offense. Do I need saving? Are you saying I'm not good enough? How dare you say that I'm a sinner? 
or perhaps too exclusive. You say this is the one way, only through Jesus, only through Jesus can we be forgiven and know the Father, only through Jesus is there a way to salvation. What about other religions? What about those who don't believe? How can you arrogantly believe it's the only way? Or perhaps people could take offense. Well, we want to keep the cross somehow, but in reality, the way you're presenting it just sounds too violent, too offensive. We want to soften it somehow. Can we just see it somehow as a sign or a, or a moral lesson or somehow purely a demonstration of love? The ultimate example of turning the other cheek. But perhaps we could leave out the bit about Jesus taking our sin and him paying the price for us. How could that be right? Steve Chalk famously compared that to cosmic child abuse. God sending his innocent son to die in our place. How could it be? It can't be the truth. How could he be a substitute for us? Yet we see again and again through the New Testament the picture being painted of the loving relationship between the Father and the Son. You can just look at it, the words spoken at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. This is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. The loving relationship between God and the Father and the Son and the truth that Jesus came as a sacrifice of atonement to die in our place. In fact, Jesus willingly chooses the cross. The wonderful words in John 10 and verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as my father knows me and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And on in verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. People can object, people can take offense, but this is the truth. It's too violent, it's too exclusive, it's too, how can it be the only way and yet Jesus again is clear. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And as Paul say, Greeks look for wisdom. It's the idea, this is absurd. How on earth does this work? God becomes a man and dies. And particularly in Greek and Roman society, dying on a cross was the ultimate sign of utter humiliation. How can this be a saviour? How can this even be a prophet, much less God himself? It's ridiculous. It's foolish. And again, 
This type of reaction can be so true today. Richard Dawkins, the biologist and author of The God Delusion, once said in debate with John Lennox, ultimately calling the cross and resurrection petty. He said this, John Lennox believes that the creator of the universe, the God who devised the laws of physics and the laws of mathematics, couldn't think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come to this speck of cosmic dust and have himself tortured and executed so that he could forgive himself. Then he tags on, that is profoundly unscientific. He went on to say in another part of the, the debate, having produced some sort of case for a deistic God, perhaps, this is what Lennox apparently had done. Some God that the great, the great physicist who adjusted the laws and constants of the universe, that's all very grand and wonderful, suddenly we come down to the resurrection of Jesus. It's so petty, so trivial, so local, so earthbound, so unworthy of the universe. You see, for many, the idea of a God or a creator or a God of any kind, but even more so, a God who steps in, who became a man, who came and was with us and who died and rose again. This is, this just sounds utterly absurd. So that doesn't have to be a well-educated biologist who thinks he understands what's going on to take this view. The idea of a God who became a man and died on a cross is seen as too medieval, too old-fashioned, too petty, too foolish. We're now too sophisticated, too advanced for that. That so many just write it off, whether rich or poor, educated or not, whatever background can look at the cross and think, what? But you see what Dawkins was arguing against, John Lennox's argument, John Lennox is right. Even if you're looking at the, how the, the universe was created, if you're looking at the whole, the whole shebang, I was going to say, that was a weird word to choose. Anyway, the whole, everything, that was what I was trying to say. throwing myself centers on this Jesus rose from the dead and in so doing showed that he was exactly who he said he was and showed that he did have the power over death and sin and hell and showed that he is the God who created everything everything through him was created and perhaps you're here today. You might understand these reactions. That's just foolishness. It's just a fairy tale that someone made up. Or it just seems a bit offensive to me. I would encourage you, heed the inherent warning of the passage. Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians is, Look, in something that looks so foolish, God, in his wisdom, has destroyed the wisdom of the world. You might think you know better. You might think you know better than God. 
but he knows best. Don't write it off. Don't walk away thinking, nah, that's just a fairy tale. But come and see the truth of Christ crucified, the God who went to the cross and rose again. You see, many argue, many even scoff at the message of the cross. Whether they see it as absurd, outdated or offensive, But the reality is, as Paul points out here, the only other real alternative is to humbly see that the cross, though it may appear foolish, is true and therefore is actually phenomenal. The word phenomenal dictionary will define as meaning either remarkable or exceptional, especially exceptionally good. Synonyms, exceptional, extraordinary, remarkable, outstanding, amazing, astonishing, astounding, stunning, staggering, marvellous, or magnificent. Or as Paul puts it, for us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Or later in the passage, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, Paul's either-or response is right. If it's false, go ahead and mock and scoff. But if indeed it is true, a fact, then the cross can't just be a nice story. It requires humility. Because the message of the cross strips us bare to see I am a sinner, hopeless, lost, dead even. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 5, Paul goes on to say, just at the right time while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. I'm a sinner, hopeless, lost and dead, but in this I can find forgiveness. In this, I can find life. I can't save myself. But in Christ, I can find salvation. Because Jesus Christ died and rose again, we can be saved. It is phenomenal, and it requires a response of faith. Will I believe it? Will I put my faith in him? In Jesus, the Son of God who became a man. In Jesus who died in my place. In Jesus who rose from the dead. In Jesus who defeated sin and death. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. And Paul cries in these verses here, where is the wise man? Where is the teacher? Where is the philosopher of the age? Where is anyone who can do what Christ has done in going to the cross? So here is Jesus, the conqueror of sin and death and the hope for the world. You see, this is the phenomenal truth of the message of the cross. 
Jesus, the Son of God, died. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that none of us ever need to do so if we come to him. If we recognize in humility, this is phenomenal. He died in my place. And now I can know God. I can be forgiven. I can turn from my sinful way of life and come to him in Christ's righteousness. We're going to respond to that by coming to break bread. We're going to come and just keep focusing on the cross. After we've done that, we'll probably sing a song to close. But this is the response today. Am I going to believe him? If you know him and love him, come and take the bread and take the wine and remember all it is that he has done for us. He died, he rose again. He is seated in glory at the Father's right hand. If you don't know him today, there's a moment here to ask him, God, are you really there? Is this really true? You can know him today. You can be forgiven today. You can be saved today. So as others are coming and taking the bread and wine, I would ask you, cry out to God. Ask him. Maybe before you've thought, this is just absurd. What is this all about? I don't understand. But here's a moment to take to ask him to come before God and recognize that he's real and that he has died on the cross for you.